Engineer Ted Blackman works on the Urbit OS kernel. Like many Tlon employees, Ted initially came to the project as an open source contributor. In this discussion, Ted breaks the operating system down into its components and explains its relationship to Urbit ID, which we will cover in depth in episode 4. Ted begins by helping us establish a foundational understanding of what an operating system is and what roles traditional OSs excel in. Then he explores how Urbit functions as a layer above, creating a unique environment for applications to run within. A major question raised by the first half of this discussion, and which many Urbit enthusiasts will already have in the back of their minds, is how can such a minimalist, universal operating system take advantage of the task-specific performance benefits some CPUs offer? The answer lies in a unique Urbit innovation called JETS. In understanding JETS, we can grasp the inherent performance limitations of an operating system like Urbit, and understand how those limitations can be overcome. Ted has a talent for making the complex understandable. So while this is a very advanced episode, even a non-technical person will find this discussion educational and entertaining. My name is Ted Blackman. I'm an engineer at Urbit, I, at the Talon Corporation specifically. I work on uh, various parts of the Arvo kernel, including many of the kernel modules. Uh, I've also worked on VAR, or runtime, a fair amount. I have a very broad background deepest in robotics and um, web programming. Started to get into Urbit. I just found it online and was just interested in it. Um, I ended up writing a knock interpreter in Python. And then I, when I wrote a knock interpreter, then I was like, oh, okay, I think I kind of get how this works technically. And so then I started writing some Hoon, and Hoon made a lot more sense to me after learning knock. Uh, sorry, I didn't explain this, but Hoon is the programming language that we use here. So that's one you write in if you're writing code inside of Urbit. That compiles down to knock, which is this functional machine code. Uh, so I started writing some Hoon after writing a knock interpreter, and that was much easier, made a lot more sense. Each time I learned about it, a new piece of it, I was like, not only is this technically like compelling, and not only does it make sense, but it's also oddly beautiful. This is not something that happens very often in, in software. Every once in a while you see some piece of code that's sort of elegant, it's kind of cool. Urbit has a, a different kind of elegance that pervades the entire project. From the Urbit ID system, through NOC, through the Arvo Ver protocol, through the design of the Arvo kernel, to the design of the veins, the kernel modules, the whole data model and execution model. There's a way in which we're, like, we're stripping away half a century's worth of Sort of plaque that's built up around like the fundamental things that you actually want to do in your programming. And so then when Urbit posted a job opening, I, I jumped on it. I was like, I'm, and I'm very happy that they hired me. I'm still very happy to be here. Urbit as a project has two major components. It has the Urbit ID and Urbit OS. Urbit ID is an identity system. And so this is a way that you can buy and own an address. Uh, that address is sort of like a phone number. Or an, or an internet handle, sort of both. And you own it cryptographically by controlling the keys. And then uh, that identity system is used by Urbit OS, which is a program that you can run on your computer or on a cloud computer somewhere in a, ser like in a server farm. And that program is how you interact with Urbit, the system. And so that's a, that's a personal server. It's a personal archive for your data. Lately, I've been calling it more of like a... Uh, a personal smart contract, 
Um, it's also sort of a personal database. Uh, but it, it does networking that um, where the, the networking is backed by the Urbit ID. Um, and it also stores your data in a very persistent way where you're unlikely to lose it. And it lets you install programs and run them inside of Urbit itself. So it's really like we're building a new world of computing inside of this thing. And so it's a new network, a new OS, a new sort of data storage model. And uh, we're running it on top of the existing world, right? So it uses, it runs on top of the existing you know, IP network that everything else runs on top of. And um, something you can just install directly on your Mac OS or Linux machine. It will support Windows at some point. Urbit OS is you know, the program that you run. And the way that these Urbit OSs identify themselves and communicate with each other relies on Urbit ID uh, to know who's who. I asked Ted to define the term operating system. Mm, what is an operating system? I think when people use the term operating system, they mean a few different things. And it sort of depends who's talking about it and what context. Um, lay people, when they think of an OS, they usually think of the interface to the OS. Right, they'll think of like what do the menus and buttons look like on Mac OS, right, versus on Windows. People who work on operating systems typically think of them more as a combination of a hardware abstraction layer and an operating system kernel, and then the set of user space services and and kernel modules that go with that kernel. So Urbit is more of an operating system in in terms of the way that. People who work on operating systems think of it with one major difference, which is that we do not have a hardware abstraction layer. So a hardware abstraction layer is a way of saying like, okay, I'm on, I'm running uh, Linux on this one machine and on this other machine, uh, but programs can, or like even just the operating system kernel, like operates in a way that's agnostic to which hardware it's on. And so there's a there's a layering where um, one part of the system deals with you know, talking to the disk driver or talking to the disk. And another one deals with talking to the graphics card. Another one deals with talking to you know, whatever, some other piece of hardware, uh, talking to the memory. The operating system internally will have some way of converting its interaction with those things into a standard format. So now like you're running Linux on a machine that has one disk drive and you run it on a machine that has another disk drive. Linux can deal with those as they're like, okay, that's a disk drive. It abstracts over the hardware. And it'll do this for each specific piece of hardware. So in Urbit, we assume that Urbit is running on top of something that does that for us. So we're a new layer on top of an existing OS that assumes that that existing OS is handling the hardware abstraction layer for us. The other piece of functionality that an operating system gives you is the ability to run programs, other programs, to install and run them. I think people don't really, I think lay people really don't have a conception of this, actually. And I didn't for a long time either, even as a programmer. Um, but an operating system, I like to think of it as sort of like an interpreter for your machine code. Right? Like if you write a program and try to run it on Mac OS, for example, it actually runs in this particular way where when it, it'll try to do certain things. And when it tries to do some certain things, the, the operating system actually comes in and intercepts it. And then the control of the program turns over to the operating system, which then kind of holds your user space program in suspension, keeps it paused, and does a bunch of stuff. Let's say that you're actually writing files, a good example of this, right? It's like you're running uh, Spotify on Mac OS, right? You, know, you download a file, right, a music file. So it wants to write that to disk. 
it'll ask the operating system to write it to disk for it. Uh, and when it emits that request, what that actually does is it turns over control to the operating system, which pauses this, that thread, goes, goes and does a bunch of other stuff, potentially for a while. It can run all kinds of other programs. It can do all kinds of stuff internally. It's communicating with various pieces of hardware. And then at some point, if it you know, decides that it's done, then it says, okay, I'm done. And it takes the, you know, the memory image of that program that is suspended and it takes the result of the file write call and it writes, it overwrites part of that memory with the result and then says, okay, now go, go run again. Uh, so I think of that's sort of like, um, like the OS is an interpreter for all these other programs. And mostly it's just a pass-through interpreter where it doesn't do anything. It just lets the program run uh, on the processor. But actually those programs are typically doing a lot of syscalls, system calls often turn over control back to the OS. So any program that you write has to be compiled down to run on a particular operating system because they all have different, the way that that, in, that API, that, inter, that interface between user space program and, um, and kernel is different for every operating system. The, the reason to do this and not just run one program directly on the machine, right, which people used to do, by the way, right? So it used to be when you, in the you know, 80s, you would put a... Um, disk into the machine and boot directly off of that. And let's say you're playing a game. It's like you wouldn't like start the game from your OS. You would just – you would boot your computer into the game. So a lot of games actually had their own OS built in. And that allows you to have finer control over the hardware and whatnot. But it means that you have to rewrite your whole game if something changes, right, if you try to run on a different machine. So – or at least big chunks of the game. And there's no, you know, interop. Right? There are all these other reasons that you might want an OS. And the big one is that like – you actually want the, your experience of using a computer to be as similar as possible no matter what machine you're running it on. Machines keep changing. And this is part of why Urbit tries to be abstractly defined, right? It's like we're taking that a step further actually and saying like you should be able to take your whole sort of all of the data that you care about and all of the rules of how you want your programs to behave, you should be able to take those with you from machine to machine and even pass them down to your children and grandchildren. So Urbit is this new layer. And so Urbit does very much run other programs. It lets you install and run other programs. And that's most of what the Arvo kernel does. But we also have a bunch of other stuff built in, right? We have the networking built in. Uh, we have a file system built in. It's different from traditional file systems. You can store files in your Urbit and you can install programs. And the Arvo kernel will make sure that it runs those programs in a way that also protects the system from every program. So there's no one program that you can install that'll break things, right? Very important, actually, because these days, most of the applications that we run are really these transient ephemeral applications that we call websites, right? When you, when you go to a website, what it's doing is it sends you down a program to you and you run that program on your computer. And you'd better pray that, <laughs> that you're running that program in a way where it can't just access your data and send all your private keys to a bunch of guys in Belarus. And it turns out this is very hard to prevent, much easier in Urbit actually because of the, well, because everything's a pure function. Everything's just a tree. And, I mean, all these things make it much, much easier to actually protect the system from any individual user space program. Google Chrome has to go through these Herculean efforts to try to make the thing actually secure. So we can actually get technical here. How do you break down the Urbit OS into its subcomponents? Sure. So the first um, distinction to make is between VAR, the program that runs your Urbit. So that VAR is the program that you install on Linux or Mac OS. Uh, it's just a normal Linux or Mac OS program. So that's VAR. 
And so distinguish between that and ARVO. And ARVO, unfortunately, we use it to mean a few things. I think we should clean up the terminology a little. But um, usually we use it to refer to everything that's inside of Urbit. Um, so you have Ver that runs ARVO. What does it mean to run ARVO? Like, what is the structure of this OS? Uh, and the answer is that at any given time, uh, the structure is what's called a noun. This is an Urbit term. We call it a noun. And a noun is, it's a data structure, and it's a tree. It's a tree of numbers. So number, each number can be arbitrarily big, and they're all zero or greater than zero. You can, so your tree is either just a number, or it's a pair of trees. And so that's a recursive definition where you end up with, you know, maybe you have a number in the head of the pair, and in the tail of the pair, you have another pair. And let's say that's a pair of numbers, or maybe that's a pair of trees, right? So you can have all kinds of different shapes in here. And it turns out that this data structure is universal enough to encode it, basically anything you'd want it to encode. So all of normal computing, we stuff into this data structure. So at any given time, the state of your whole Urbit operating system is just a tree. Now, importantly, we store not only files and uh, other pieces of data, like application state in this tree, but we also, we also store the programs themselves, like the code of the programs. And for us, code is written in a language called NOC. It's like a machine code in the sense that it's also just defined in terms of numbers. It's, it's just, but you can look at, when you run NOC, you can look at a tree, uh, one of these nouns, and say, I'm going to run this tree as if it were a function, a mathematical function. And then you can execute it. So it's a specification for how to execute one of these trees. But it's just, you know, it's just a data structure stored on your machine, but we're treating it as a piece of code. So your Urbit OS, Arvo, at any given time is just one of these trees. And Ver is responsible for running knock on that tree each time something happens to produce a new tree and a list of effects, right? So the, we call this the transition function. And this is why we describe Urbit as uh, an operating function as opposed to an operating system, or sometimes we say it's a pure functional operating system. And what that means is that the whole thing is defined by, like the way that the system updates over time, the way it behaves is governed by this one function. Right? And that function is like how you execute knock. And so it's Ver, the runtime, the, the program that's running on Unix, right? That's called Ver. It's Ver's responsibility to run knock. And the way it runs it is it says every time a new event comes in, and an event could be, let's say the user pressed a key, right? A key press, or it could be an incoming HTTP request, or it could be a message or a packet coming in from another Urbit um, over UDP, or it could be uh, a timer firing. Like the, that if Arvo had asked the Vera to set a timer and that timer has now expired, then Vera will inject an event into Arvo and say, okay, now run this. Your timer is up. So the way it does this is it, it knows something about the shape of the tree that's in Arvo at any given time. There's a, there's a protocol between Arvo and Vera. Uh, Vera will take this event that's coming in from Linux right, or Mac OS and it'll turn it into a noun. It'll turn it into a tree. Just represent it as a tree, and then it'll it'll overwrite your Arvo tree, it'll, it'll, and it'll stick the new event in part of it, and then say, "Okay, now run, run knock on this modified tree that has the that has this new event in it, which it treats as an argument to a function." And so basically, we're we're running you know the knock function on you know, like the old state of your whole operating system, including all your programs and files, and this new event. And what that does is it runs knock and. That's supposed to produce, like you really hope it does, 
And it does in practice, we, unless we you know, wrote it horribly wrong. Right? So it'll produce a tree. But that tree will be a pair of a list of effects to send out and a new version of your Arbo tree. And then that new version of the Arbo tree is what will handle the next event. Right? So every time you get an event in, that, that state changes and is threaded through to the next event. And then the effects is just a data structure. It's a list um, that specify each one, each item in the list specifies something that Arvo would like there to do for it. So those are draw something to the terminal, right? You hit a key, you might want it to like show that key on the terminal. Or it might be send an HTTP, send an HTTP response to the HTTP request that came in. Or it could be send a packet back to that Urbit that sent you a request. It could be, you know, set a new timer, right? So all of these things are effects. Uh, and what makes this system pure functional is that, you know, from inside of Arvo, all you ever do is compute a function. And it's Vera's responsibility. Vera is something that lives outside of Arvo. It's Vera's responsibility to generate inputs to that function and take the results of that function, the effects that come out, and actually do them. So I often think of um, Arvo as the CPU and Vera as the motherboard. So there's one more piece of this, which is how does this get stored? And the answer is uh, it gets stored just like a database. So uh, the other way of thinking about Urbit is that we took the whole operating system, we stuffed it inside of a database. Uh, so the way databases work is the technical term is a prevalence system, which means that you have an event log and then checkpoints. So an event log means that every time you get an event, you log it, you write it down. So you write it down in some persistent way. You write it to disk. And the reason you write it to disk is that if, you know, you accidentally trip over your power cord, you want to be able to plug it back in and still have the data there. In Urbit, the rule is you can never emit effects from an event until you've written the event to disk. And it turns out that writing the event to disk is enough because it's a pure function. The only things that ever that Urbit ever does are a pure function of the sequence of events that it's received. This is also why we call it a deterministic computer. And like for non-programmers, <laughs> there's this problem where they're like, yeah, isn't that like what a computer does? And the answer is... No, not at all. Modern computers are incredibly non-deterministic in all kinds of different ways. And so it's very difficult to get a computer to do the exact same thing that it did the previous time. There are all kinds, of, um, all kinds of things that can happen in different orders, all kinds of things that depend very granularly on what time it is, and it doesn't track it. There's no way to say that it doesn't track what it did. So you can't ask it to do it again because it's like, it doesn't have any record of what that was. So, you know, databases do work this way because you want that out of a database. And a lot of what we're doing in Urbit is trying to make a programming environment and that facilitates building user-facing applications that actually work right. Jets. Can you explain Jets? I can try. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've described how Knock is a functional machine code. Uh, right, and it's all expressed in these trees. So you have a tree of numbers, and there's a way of looking at that tree and interpreting it as a program to run. And specifically, it's a interpreting it as a definition of a mathematical function. The actual way that that's done, right, like the definition of knock itself, is is very minimal. It's um, it's sort of just a little bit more than you need to get to Turing completeness, right, to get to a universal computation system. It's not the most minimal that could be written, but it's minimal enough that you can fit it on a t-shirt. It's just about 12 
opcodes. So there are 12 different instructions that you can do. That's it. That's all you ever get. Or the, thing, the reason to, to need JETS is that uh, NOC does not have every arithmetic operation that you would hope it would have. In fact, the only thing you can do with numbers in NOC are you can check whether they're equal, you can add one, and you can loop. Now, it turns out that you can rebuild all of math out of this, right? So if you want to, like, subtract one from a number, you can start with zero and then check, like, if I add one to zero, is that the number? And so if, you, if your number is one, then yeah. But if your number is three, you have to add one to zero and then add one to one and then add one to two. And then you check, okay, two is one less than three, right? So you can see how you have to loop every time your number gets bigger, right? So this is sort of obviously not a practical way to subtract one from a number using a computer. But one of the opcodes in NOC, uh, NOC 11, is a hint. The, so a hint can be any number of things, actually. But it's just saying, hey, here's a piece of data, and you're, you're hinting to the interpreter, saying like, okay, whoever's running me, here's a hint about how to run me. It can't change the value. It can't say what to run. can't change what to run, right? You have to get the same answer in order to be a valid interpreter. But... You can run me however you like. And here's, right, remember, knock is just a spec. It's just a specification for a function to be run. It makes no stipulations about how that function should be computed. So one thing that you can do if you're an interpreter is instead of running the actual knock code in the function, if you know exactly what that knock code is and you happen to know that you can run that in a faster way, then you can just go ahead and run it in the faster way. That's called a jet. So a jet is a... It's a piece of code that a, that a knock interpreter maintains where as it's running knock, if that knock emits a hint saying, hey, I'm this function, I'm the SHA-256 function, uh, or I'm decrement, subtract one from a number, then the interpreter can run a check to make sure that the code that's in that function is exactly what it's, ex what it's expecting. And if it is, then instead of running that code, it can go ahead and use the processor's implementation of, of decrement. And processors have an, an ALU, arithmetic logic unit, that has decrement as a built-in thing in hardware. It can run it incredibly quickly. And so the idea of uh, what I haven't – so that's how it works, right? So you're running a bunch of not code. piece of not code says, hey, I'm decrement. The interpreter goes, oh, I know how to run decrement quickly. I'll do it that way. And there's a question of like, well, why did we do it this way? Why didn't we just put a bunch of arithmetic operators in NOC? Uh, and the answer is that – we want Urbit to last forever. So we want the specification for Urbit to be totally abstract, and we don't want it to depend on any particular implementation of hardware. So modern computers have some set of arithmetic operations that they can run quickly. That set actually keeps changing, mostly expanding. It varies a lot from computer to computer. Uh, you know, you can run a microcontroller that doesn't have hardware floating point, for example. Or you can run, you know, a big x86-64 chip that has integrated graphics with, you know, hundreds of cores in it for doing vector math, right? And sort of everything in between. So NOC needs to be totally agnostic to what kind of computer it's run on so that it can – so that you can take your Arvo state from one computer and move it to a different computer and it'll still work. And if you do that 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, it still needs to work. Um, but building that in is like this is the fundamental way to to have this kind of functionality. This is the fundamental way to take advantage of hardware acceleration of a particular type of computation is a very nice and principled 
way to do this. And it's never been done before as a um, sort of like as part of the definition of a computing system. And it's um, probably one of the best ideas in Urbit. It's a little bit difficult to get right, but it's one of those really, really deep ideas that separates out mechanism and policy, right? The, the policy is defined by here's this knock spec, right? Or here's the knock code. And a lot of people claim that their code is just an executable specification, but in knock, like that really is an executable specification. And then we can even just define other ways of executing that specification by adding a jet. Uh, right now, there are two different knock interpreters. There's the one that we run in Ver. So it actually has a knock bytecode that it runs for up for so it takes knock, converts it to bytecode, runs that. That's written in C um, using a bunch of computed go tos. Actually, pretty cool. And then uh, there's another one that's in development right now, but it does work. And it's called Jacques, and it's written using um, the Graal and Truffle compiler generation system or like JIT generation system. And so we're hopeful that that one will go a bit faster and have some other better properties. But um, we'll probably keep both of them going. It's good to have multiple interpreters. And uh, you know, both of them have different sets of jets. And they jet things in different ways. And they both work. Is it efficient? No. In general, it's not. So, I mean, this is the, one of the biggest like, you know, critiques of Urbit as a project is that it's not that fast. The thing is, it's not that slow either. So, yeah, you're not going to run, like, a first-person shooter video game in Urban. Not now, maybe not ever. But computers these days are actually quite fast. And Urbit right now is probably about as fast as maybe Python, which is, you know, really not a boast. Python is pretty slow. Knock is also not as slow as you'd think it is. It's weird. It's like um, we have put maybe one or two engineers worth of time into optimizing knock for a couple of years. If you took the amount of money that has been dumped into making JavaScript go fast, which is in the multiple billions of dollars, I believe, because browsers care about this, right? So you get Google and Microsoft and Mozilla all dumping huge amounts of money into you know, V8 and SpiderMonkey and these other JavaScript running environments. If you took that much money and dumped it into making knock go fast, it would be much faster than JavaScript. And JavaScript these days is actually pretty fast. It's not C, but uh, it's surprisingly quick. So Knock is so simple, that, and it has a bunch of features actually that should lend itself, lend themselves towards being heavily optimized, but will require a fair amount of investment to actually make those come to fruition. Things like fully immutable data structures, everything's acyclic, uh, so garbage collection is really trivial. We know a path of optimizing Knock that is very doable and it's just going to take some time some resources to, to build. But yeah, it's not going to be as fast as, as C. Uh, but the thing is, like, people, what, for what you want to do with Urbit, um, it's plenty fast, actually. Visit urbit.org forward slash install to get started. A Discord invite can be found at urbit.org and a Telegram channel at urbit.live. Next up, Chief Product Officer Anthony Arroyo explains the effects technology can have on freedom and the need for a computer that responds to the realities of today's world.